So when was it, eye drawn like blown cloud, couldn't stop dreaming of roaming, roving the coast up and down? This summer I went home to California for my daughter's wedding. After the festivities, I took the coast road north out of L.A., reliving my journeys north as a young girl and the long trajectory that brought me to Ireland. The coast road is narrow, but narrower still is the road to the past. My memories sky-riding confused with clouds. I was born in the far west, in California, in a town called Hollywood, Wood of the Hollies, where it is always Christmas. a talking picture of you do do it was a, the song was a, actually a reprieve uh, because earlier in the picture Charlie uh, uh, Charles Farrell sings it to her and he's holding a little picture and it comes to life and it was a very popular song at that time that was about 1927 I think it was you know another thing I was thinking of not too long after that um, I, you know, when you're thinking back, you don't know how these things came about. You can just remember yourself being places. And I remember uh, I was in a recording studio with uh, Mickey McGuire, who is Mickey Rooney now, but his, at that time he was Mickey McGuire, and we were introducing the first Mickey Mouse song. Now, I can't understand how this, where this came from or anything, but we were singing... I'm the guy they call Little Mickey Mouse, da-da-da-da-da, and I don't know how it goes from there, but we did a whole number like that, and now I don't know whatever happened to that or what, where it is now. But it was like a magical life, really. I mean, people think of Hollywood. That was it. They, you know, they've always talked about Hollywood and Vine, which never was anything. It was just a, a corner. But uh, still, uh, people always remember that street as, as having um, the meaning, the center idea of, of Hollywood. My first morning back in California, as I sat in my friend's patio watching a hummingbird busy among the trumpet vines, what sounded like a war broke out a block away. Gunshots, screams, shouting, sirens. Then the police helicopters began circling the sky above my head. While I was sitting there having my first cup of coffee, a young man shot his girlfriend five times in the head at a bus stop because she had broken off their engagement. After a brief chase on the freeway, he turned the gun on himself. A gas station attendant who saw the whole thing was distraught because when he got to the murdered girl, her eyes were open. 
an elderly man dismissed the tragedy, saying to me, Oh, those Mexicans are always shooting each other. His white-haired tennis partner wept because she knew the girl from the dry cleaners where she took her clothes. Michael, you came here from England uh, to work in movies, and you're living in a very beautiful place, but the neighborhood is dicey. Tell us about that. It's, uh, well, basically, it's, um, it's on Vine and uh, Santa Monica, and uh, anyone that's got any romantic ideas about uh, Hollywood and Vine uh, should listen to this. Uh, yeah, I moved in there, and about the fourth or fifth evening I was living there, um, nine gunshots rang out. Uh, one evening I threw myself onto the floor of my bedroom. There were four shots from one gun, and then five from another. You could tell the two different noises. And uh, there was a lot of screaming and yelling and shouting, and then a car swerved and skidded and hit something, perhaps another car, I don't know what. And then a couple of minutes later, a police siren came roaring around the corner. I mean, uh... Pierce Brothers Cemetery is the best-kept secret in Los Angeles, even though Marilyn Monroe's ashes are interred here. It lies behind one of the busiest intersections in California, tucked in behind glittering skyscrapers. A discreet sign points the way down a blind, cypress-lined drive. Since my own mother was buried here, the neighborhood has become predominantly Iranian. An Omar Sharif type is bending over an exotic slab, reading the Arabic inscription beside a picture of the deceased. In English is carved, the legendary Heidi, Iran's foremost singer, dedicated 23 years of her brief life to Iran's music. Her voice will remain a part of the cultural history of her nation. Heidi and Marilyn, both brief candles, died at about the same age. Today is Marilyn's birthday. Since we've been here, a procession of visitors have been paying tribute. Below her small vault, bouquets are accumulating. A plump Asian girl has just placed a single tiger lily in her crowded memorial urn and wheeled off in a new Camaro. A healthy-looking couple parked their jeep and brought flowers. They're wandering around reading other inscriptions. Another group came up in a maroon coupe de ville and are posing for snapshots holding her flowers. They've stuck their business cards behind her nameplate.
I don't want to be cremated, my clothes sent home in a bag, my ashes sifted from the furnace grate for my clatter ring and gold fillings. No, plant me like my grandmother's blazing dahlias in the subsuming earth where I can be lifted, where there's a chance of resurrection. How about the hump-backed hill beyond Barna riddled with Celtic crosses? Or the sun-shot meadow on Orcus facing steaming Mount Baker? On second thought, Westwood is best, beside my mother, where the mockingbird sang the night she was buried. You might know the spot, because that's where they placed Marilyn's ashes in a pale marble crypt looking across at our family plot. They say it's Joe provides the perpetual rose, but no one knows for certain. Be sure you put me in the ground where I will have a chance to rise. For me, L.A. has shrunk to the size of my mother's grave, the only place I go back to now that my family and friends all live elsewhere. On this visit, my father told me his name won't be appearing in the blank space on my mother's headstone because he plans to be buried in another suburb beside his second wife. So who gets the grave? It's bought and paid for whose name will appear there across from Marilyn Monroe. I don't want to think too hard about this one. Have your attention, please, especially those passengers just boarding here at Santa Cruz. I must advise you that there's no smoking allowed at any time while aboard the bus. It's a state and federal law. No smoking at any time while you're aboard the bus, and that includes the restroom at the rear of the bus. Please don't use the restroom as a smoking room. If at any time I suspect you've been smoking, I must stop the bus at an unscheduled stop and let you off so you can finish your cigarette and wait for the next bus. So please, no smoking at any time while you're on the bus. Our next stop will be Watsonville, we're scheduled to arrive there at 11.10. We make stops at Moss Landing, Casterville, Fort Ord, Seaside, Monterey, and Salinas. Scheduled to arrive in Monterey at 12.05 and Salinas at 12.40. If you have radios or tape players you want to listen to while on the bus, please do so with earphones for your own private listening enjoyment. Please keep the volume low enough so you don't disturb other passengers and also low enough that I don't hear it at the front of the bus. Please use earphones. Please keep the volume low. If you don't have earphones, please keep it turned off while aboard the bus. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your cooperation. Thanks for going with us today. Have a good trip. We Americans are born on the move. We are promised marvels just over the next hill. As a child, I sought them from the windows of buses, the back seat of my father's Packard, 
and most of all on the trains from Union Station. A train called the Desert Wind runs out to Las Vegas and overnight to Chicago. But it is the Coast Starlight, a train running up to San Francisco, Portland, and Seattle that my eyes search out on the schedule here in the cavernous Union Station. If I were catching the train today, I could still order pancakes and apple pie as I did in the late 40s on my first trip north. Union Station is the last of the great American train stations. Built in 1939 in California Mission style, its tiled floors, colorful mosaics, patios and fountains are all being restored. A banner announces the grand opening of the completed station in September 93. The only intrusive element is McCarthy's Cafe, a trendy cafeteria totally out of keeping with the solid leather and carved wood seats, the speaker housings like miniature altarpieces, and the massive hanging bronze and frosted glass chandeliers modeled on train wheels. Today, the main patio, its jacaranda dropping electric blue blossoms, is too hot to sit in. I remember crowds surging through the many bronze doors. They're not needed anymore. One entrance is enough. And what of the journey up the coast, which we all watched until darkness curtained the windows? The adults partied all night in the club car, their bunks undisturbed. What joy it was for a young girl to climb into a snug berth under heavy starched sheets, rock to sleep by the clicking wheels, and wake up in San Francisco. Had I boarded the desert wind instead of the coast starlight, I would have traveled east into the high desert.
The coast starlight was taking me to my aunt's home in Oakland, to a shingled house I still dream about, finding and losing it, much as I have found and lost myself. Wisteria covered the eaves, where the bedroom walls angled down to meet you. An organ stood in the apple green parlor. The coach house was rented to students. One warm morning this summer, I hunted again for this house, thought I'd found it, only to be told that the house I was photographing had recently been moved from across the street. After phoning my 80-year-old aunt in the mountains, I walked to the correct spot on Benvenue and found my childhood, now owned by a dentist, barely recognizable behind a high fence. are with me, whether they know it or not. I keep them there. We might pass on the street, so changed we are strangers. But when we can, we embrace the shades of our old selves. This summer, I searched for the most glamorous of our college crowd, the elusive, hard-drinking ladies' man we called the poet. His poems were whispered about, though never read. We were all sure he was a genius. The chap who bought his business told me he had died suddenly last year playing tennis. He gave me a booklet of poems, a memorial of sorts, full of falling leaves and odes to a beloved dog. Mandelstam wrote a letter to his wife instructing her to stop him from putting any more stars in his poems. The friend who told me this story hugged me so hard in the street we stopped traffic, while others from those days did not return my calls. Judy, you and I both grew up in the 50s, and the American dream for our generation was a husband, a family, a house with a picket fence, a flower garden. The husband would be employed in the same job all his life. The marriage would never go on the rocks. How do you see that now? It just doesn't exist. I don't know that that's anyone's dream anymore. That life isn't like that at all. Um, there are no... There are... The, I believe there's some statistic that the, that the majority of families in America are single-parent families. I, I know that when I worked in an elementary school was very common for the children not to identify with the terms father and mother. And they would ask one another, now how many mothers do you have? Because they all had stepmothers and stepfathers or one parent or um, that kind of thing. I think those aspirations, as far as I can see, just seeing fairly average American life, it, it doesn't, it isn't like that anymore. Um, 
either was a commercial or something on television that I saw recently that talked about, for instance, what I remember in the 50s when we did actually go to Grandma's house for dinner. And when my children were very young, we went to my mother's house for Sunday dinner. My mother wore an apron and cooked dinner. That's unheard of here now. It's unusual to ever hear of a family sitting down at a dinner table together. Their life is too fast-paced. People don't have the time to do that. Um, and the commercial said something about no one goes to Grandma's house for dinner anymore because she's not in the kitchen cooking dinner. She's jogging in the Caribbean. And that really is very true. You know, that you see grandmothers on the street in uh, $100 uh, exercise outfits and $100 tennis shoes. Big wind blues. There's a wind gonna blow all the name tags away, all the price tags, all the brand names. Big wind gonna blow out of the dark country, out of the dead country. Everything you can't remember without a label, gone. Toll free numbers, license plates, small print warnings on bottles, ticket stubs, half price coupons, middle names, not even forgotten, blown away. Out of the dark country, out of the dead country. What you love, that takes a little longer. Big wind gonna blow. Big wind. Julia Vinograd is a street poet. She has a home because she writes about her rent. The fact that she is large, lame, and 50, and never changes her clothes, makes her a non-celebrity in her hometown. 33 books, and she's still invisible. 20 years ago, I was 20, and being 20 passes, but does not go away. After I'm dead, men in shiny orange vests will still fix the streets whenever there's an election, and someone will always be 20. Empires are not as interesting as the mom's and pop's corner grocery store. Eternity comes in cigarette packs behind the counter, in lottery tickets with an infinite number of zeros on the prize that never wins, in cans of Campbell soup to be heated up alone, in Milky Way bars, bite by forbidden bite, thou shalt not look upon the face of God, thou shalt not eat chocolate, or surely thou shalt die. Humans are touchingly small and imprecise. Touching also scares us. Someday I'll be dead and then I'll be sorry I never fixed it all. It seems so simple, one wire to be tightened beyond the sky. But somehow, I never found the time. Memory stitches me, threads mending tears that will one day open again. I am my past, and I am also a past I never had, a past recalled by others who knew me in a way I did not know myself. My first recollection of you is that you're a very young girl 
with stringy blonde hair and that you were very wistful. You had a very wistful quality. I think I came over to your house once and you I was surprised at such a young girl because you're maybe three years younger than me than I am and I didn't know anybody that had children. Let's say that I was maybe 24 or 5. And uh, you had these children, beautiful little children. And I think I saw you once in the house with them. But you seemed very... Then we had this conversation and you asked me if I'd like to take a bus ride with you. And I thought that was very odd. I said, you said, I take bus rides and something like I write letters or postcards on the bus and I'm very dreamy on the bus and I get very sexy on these long bus rides. And I said, oh, really? Do you really get sexy on the bus rides? And you said, don't you know that a long ride on a Greyhound bus is very sexy? Haven't you heard about that one? And I thought that was totally fascinating. I said, my God, she has very odd thoughts. She's a, she's a mysterious kind of person with, who thinks for herself. She does think for herself, which I liked. And she's experimented with her feelings. You struck me as an experimenter. And I felt very stodgy by comparison. I felt that I was not an experimenter. I was much more the straight and narrow type. I felt that I was essentially more derivative. I could not think for myself. I could not feel for my, feel my own feelings. I couldn't live out of me. I felt that everything I had was secondhand. I got it from somebody else. And that's the feeling that I have about myself. But I see you now, and I see, or imagine I see, but I feel that I see that same person. I, I, I cling to the first way, my first vision of how you appeared. But you seem not to be in trouble. You seem not to be in psychic trouble or psychological trouble. Uh, and that is wonderful. You have like an airy quality about you. You you know, the mudslides may have fallen down the hill, but they somehow didn't take you. And that's that quality that you're aloft, you're airborne. And that's, I know nothing about you, Anne. I don't know what, you know, what you really suffer. I mean, you're, you're in the world, you have to suffer like the rest of us. But you had that quality. I refused to abandon the vision I had when I met you when we were in our young 20s, it's still very much intact. And so everything I see about you is that you you don't seem wounded, you don't seem seared or hurt. And I'm sure that you have been. Renee has three daughters. Two of them are happy and well, but the one that totally dominates her life is mentally ill. 
Bronwyn's face is not on a milk carton, but she is as surely lost as the children who have disappeared. After taking bad street drugs, she vanished down a dark tunnel inside herself. Her mother has lived in a grief cabin ever since. Renee, we were talking about your daughter getting ill and the fact that you have felt so alone through this illness. And I was saying that if you were living in Ireland, you would be praying, your friends would be doing novenas, you'd have the opportunity on, of going on pilgrimages and sharing some of this concern. And you say that that's an appealing idea to you. Totally appealing idea. What's happened to me, Anne, is that I feel very much alone with this thing. Very much alone. Uh, I don't feel the fa there was a father, a biological father. His sense of things is that he's adequately involved, but my sense of things is that he's basically uninvolved. So he's not with me on this at all. His concept of is, is just to believe that I feel my daughter has been terribly misdiagnosed. It's a very ugly psychiatric system here in the United States. Uh, if you become a chronically institutionalized patient, forget it, because the care is just a garbage can. If, you, if they don't whisk you out of it as soon as it happens, you know, in the first year or two, and you become chronically institutionalized, as my daughter has, it's pretty, it's the pits. My daughter is in a state hospital. The doctors all have too many people, 40, pe 40 people on a caseload, and you can't think, you're just a face in the crowd. You cannot think creatively about somebody's medication regime, the correct treatment for that person, and the doctors tend to be very shitty and ignorant. I feel I'm, uh, some of my energy is in battling doctors, you know, trying to fight, be an advocate for my daughter. All of these trials, and there are millions of them, fighting with the hospital, because I feel she's misdiagnosed, I feel the treatment is terrible. People, if a problem hangs on for over the course of time, for a long time, people get tired of it. And the friends I used to have, I can't stand being with anymore, because when I see them, their problem is that their daughter wore the wrong dress to a party. And when I hear this, I feel a clutch at my heart. I feel deeply, I feel these people... I had one friend and I was telling her, you know, how sick I am over Bronwyn. And she said, oh, tut, tut, tut. And she began to talk about her child, you know, something that sounded very trivial to me. But no one, when something enormous, the enormity of it, when something enormous happens, people can't stand it. Now, I don't know how it is in Ireland, but this is a very funny country where grieving and trouble just... It's not easy to find people that are a sympathetic community. It just isn't. So when you say, you know, pilgrimages and novenas and this and that, I say, oh my God, how wonderful just to do, to share your grief with someone so that you're not 
totally alone. Totally alone. Now here I am, I'm married. But I don't feel married at all. I don't feel married even though my husband has been often very kind. Uh, but I don't feel... I, I've been so branded as a loner that I don't really feel... I don't feel I can connect with anybody anymore. That sounds like a very terrible thing to say. But I really feel that a door has shut. A door has shut on my connectability with just about anyone. A door has shut. Bernadette, you've come here from Ireland and settled very happily in uh, San Francisco, but there are some things that one never gets used to in another culture. You mentioned a few of them to me. Well, you know, like we were talking earlier, Annie, I was talking about the violence seems to be so acceptable, like in these uh, sports personalities. I am always appalled. I, I feel that younger children are so influenced by the sports personalities. And yet you take up the paper and you see that Mike Tyson is in prison for rape. O.J. Simpson beat his wife. Jose Canseco stalked his wife at 4 o'clock in the morning and rammed her car and, and brutally assaulted her. And it seems to me that the next night people are paying an astronomical amount of money for a ticket to go and watch them perform and that the, that the violence is acceptable. Um, the other thing that isn't really related to violence but kind of puzzles me, as a young teenager, I, I really loved Elvis Presley. But, I mean, as everybody knows, he was an addict and he died, you know, of an overdose. And now in the United States, we're putting him on a stamp. So I really can't figure out what it is we're telling the young people. I, I just feel that there's a really, a really mixed message there. You know, there's ads and campaigns on the television all the time for say no to drugs, and Nancy Reagan is out there, and they're all out there say no to drugs, and then they're putting a drug addict on a stand. So I just think that it's just mixed message. all day not thinking about the letter from my landlord. During the morning when there was a slight wind ruffling smiles and faces like loose ribbons and my sister and I had coffee and a poet friend and I marched conquering armies over the bright tile tables of the Mexican restaurant, I didn't think about the $50 rent raise next month. And during the afternoon when bare shoulders luxuriated in wrapped shawls of heavy light and I made some phone calls then browsed a bookstore pressing myself between the cool pages. I didn't think about the $30 increase in six months. 
And this evening, while I'm waiting for a Chinese restaurant to bring me their excellent version of Kentucky Fried Chicken, yes, really, and trying to write a poem, I've been not thinking about the annual rent increase amount unspecified that kicks in January 1st. I'm carrying the letter in its envelope tucked in my notebook two pages away from this poem. The letter is paper. I could crumple it in my fist. Pretty soon I'll go home and stroke the walls to see if my fingers go right through them. Flying from here, the sun will rise all the way to Ireland. Sunset in the bog, and I no longer hear the music of America rumble of aircraft roar of traffic and the miraculous bird song heard in the city streets middle age brings with it feelings of bi-location when i'm walking the rivers and canals of galway i am also walking a fire trail through dusty chaparral in the hollywood hills through the french windows of my first house I see myself setting the table for dinner. My children are still small. Through these same windows, I also see myself as I am now. It is autumn in Ireland. A turf fire burns in the grate. Ours is the only house in the terrace where the lights are blazing in every room and on the porches front and back. We brought that habit with us. Mm-hmm. 